This is the Advent season. My family and I, on Thursday, drove to the Christmas tree farm, cut down another gorgeous balsam fir, put it up inside the house and decorated it this weekend, and it just feels right. You know what I mean? When you sit in your living room and you have Christmas lights on a balsam fir, not a Fraser fir, Sarah, a balsam fir, probably you remembered that from several years ago because I, knowing me, Knowing me, I probably talked about it for three hours into your ear, how much I love that Christmas tree. And um, it did smell really good, too. Uh, so it just feels right, right? You put on the Christmas lights, and you sit on your couch, and you're like, this is, this is Christmas. You get that warm, fuzzy feeling with Kenny G in the background, right? Little Kenny G on his clarinet. Man, love it. That's home for Christmas. Other than other than Netflix now being dominated by really terrible Christmas movies, really terrible Christmas movies, I had to go through the horrible experience of watching a movie called The Princess Switch. That was a travesty. (laughs) That was probably the worst thing I've ever seen on TV. I'm not even exaggerating. It was horrible. Uh, It was the girl from High School Musical, And what I don't understand, that's all I remember, was the girl from the high school musical. um, What's her name? Her name is Gabriella. It's sad that I know her from high school. Gabriella from high school. Please don't judge me. Um, And I also don't understand why all of those Christmas, lame Christmas movies on Netflix all sound like Baltic countries, right? They all sound like Baltic. The one, it was Montenaro, which is very close to an actual country called Montenegro. And there's another one called, like, um, uh, I can't even remember what it's called, but it's something I'll have to end in Ania. So they, they all, they're all Baltic-sounding, I have no idea why. Anyway. But it just feels right. Being home for Christmas. There was a Christmas in my memory, though, when I was in school, that I was home for Christmas, and we had all of these things, lame Christmas movies and beautiful Christmas lights, and it was wintry outside. Um, However, I had just driven away from my, at the time, girlfriend's house, who is now my wife, and I was bummed out. I was home for Christmas, but the person that I wanted to be there wasn't there, and no amount of music and lights could satisfy this feeling or this, this sense that I wasn't actually home, because home represents the things we long for. It's where we belong, where things are the way that they should be. Even if your home currently doesn't represent those things, maybe you come from a home that is in crisis. But I think all of us have this view of home that this is a place where everything should, the the longing of my heart will be finally satisfied. There will be warmth and, and belonging and closeness and intimacy and all those things that the home should represent. The passage we're looking at for the next couple weeks in Isaiah chapter 40, speaks to a people that were far away from home. They were in something called exile, in a foreign nation. They'd just gone through warfare. They've just been dragged, kicking and screaming from their homes and now have to endure life in a country that doesn't respect them, that doesn't respect their beliefs. Very similar to the context that we've been looking at in 1 Peter, but a couple of you know, number of hundred years earlier, the people of God now away from home, longing to return. 
Why were they away from home? If you look in Isaiah chapter 39, just before Isaiah 40, it says this. Isaiah 39, 5-7, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. Here's the prophecy. Here's the vision from God. When all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. So you're going to be kicked away from, you're going to be kicked out of your home. Imagine getting this vision or dream from God. Everyone's wanting a vision from God until it looks like this. You're going to be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's the word of the Lord. That's the vision. For the people of God, you're going to be carried away to a foreign country. You're going, to be, you're going to serve them. You're not going to be able to choose the life that you want. It's going to be chosen for you by a country that doesn't respect you. And it certainly doesn't respect your faith. Who? I mean, talk about a word from the Lord. Imagine an elder sitting around a leaders meeting at a church and says, I've received a word from the Lord. And this is what it sounds like. You know the church vision day at the beginning of every year is like, this is what we believe God has for us this year. And one of those leaders says, I think we're going to be taken from our homes and we're going, to be, we're going to be in servitude over a people that doesn't respect us. I feel like all the other leaders would be like, okay, we're going to table that, maybe for next time. I don't think that's going to be the vision of this church. But that was God's plan for these people at this time. <laughs> This was God's plan, and it happened. It happened. And let's be clear, it was because of their actions, their continued disobedience, their continued ignoring of God's command and warning from the prophets that had, had for the last hundreds of years, and it led them to be selfish. It led them to be arrogant. I mean, this was the people of God. This was the people that was supposed to be a blessing to the rest of the world. They were the people that was supposed to follow God's command so that the rest of the world could look in and see, oh, that's the way life is supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to function. It's opposite of everything that home actually represents now. Not belonging, but now they're going to be outcasts. They're going to be exiles. Not safety, but now they're going to be attacked. There's going to be war. I mean, some of you probably feel that. You've been waiting for uh, a vision from God or direction from God. And maybe in your personal life, you're experiencing financial crisis. Man, some of you living in Waterloo Region are dreaming of owning a home, and that dream is quickly fading. Now I flip on the news, and there's another variant coming, and I'm like, oh my goodness. Maybe some of you Similarly to them in Isaiah 39, uh, you've been rocked by shame, guilt, addictions from your past, the things that you have committed on your own that you are responsible for that is there and it's real and you think, how, how did I do those things? How could I, how could I, how could I be in such uh, uh, darkness that I would actually commit some of those things? Why would God even take notice of me because of the guilt that I'm feeling, the things that I've actually done, the things that I'm hiding from everybody else. There's a huge shift, though, in Isaiah 40. And the first word, after this judgment is pronounced, is now comfort. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to her, to Jerusalem, and cry to her. Comfort, speak tenderly. It's a huge shift from why would God even take notice of me? You're going to be sent to a foreign land to now. God sends someone to speak tenderly. He says, your warfare, or your, what would be a better translation, your period of duress will be over. It's ended. Your sin, your iniquity is pardoned. And it says she's received from the Lord's hand double, or it's a completion for all of our sins. The punishment is complete. The punishment was real, but here's the point that is, gives us so much hope. That they would not be, even though they continued to disobey God and to live in ignoring of God's commands, and there was a real punishment, God says your worst moments, those worst moments would not define you. Your worst moments would not define you. And boy, do we need that encouragement. Some of you have things stuck in your mind, like, I can't believe I did that, and that worst moment is defining your life. You pronounce judgment on yourself and lost in your, your own shame and guilt. We all look back on things very lightly. I still wake up in cold sweats thinking about the first time I took my G2 driver's license and failed miserably because I could not parallel park my car. I couldn't do it. After five minutes of attempting to parallel park this car, I said, there it is. And he's looking at me like I'm completely insane. He's like, we are still 10 feet away from the curb. We're still 10 feet away. No, I can't, I can't do it. I've, I've, I went blank. And I still wake up in cold sweats, reliving that moment. I was so embarrassed. Who can't parallel par- I couldn't at the time. I was terrible. I still avoid it like the plague. I will drive around parking lots looking for a sacred pull-through, right? I'll park way away just to get a pull-through location. But we all look back on things that define us, that I mean, even in our society today, we are quick to define people by their worst possible moment. And the rest of their life now hinges on the worst thing that they've done or said. And while that's real, and it exists, and there's punishment, and there's consequences to it, the hope that we have is that there's a greater defining moment. There's something that comes next. <laughs> For me, in my test, finally, it was the next time I took my G2 test, and I, I practiced that parallel park over and over again, and I nailed it on the first try. And now that's my defining moment for driving. <laughs> Romans 5, verse 20 says, Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. There's something far greater that defines your life than your sin. And it's the grace shown to us by God. And in the people of God, even hundreds of years, thousands of years ago, for all of the horrible things that they had done, the darkness that they were living, that wouldn't define them. It would be if they turned to God. It was the grace shown to them by God that was greater than even how great their sin was and how dark their sin was. But their grace abounded so much more. There was something else grander, greater than their sin that defines them. With this being said, 
in the rest of this passage in Isaiah chapter 40. God sends not... (laughs) It's Christmas, so you got to throw some Christmas things in here. God doesn't send three spirits to haunt... I had a brain fart. Ebenezer Scrooge. Doesn't send three spirits. He sends three voices or three messengers to proclaim... Three messages from the Lord to deliver groundbreaking news that still rings true for you today. News that will change everything about you. You know, we might sometimes get news or we post on social media about a wedding and now I'm, you know, Kale and Alicia are here for the first time as Mr. and Mrs. Kale and Alicia St. John. And that's amazing news or the news of a new, of a new child or a promotion at work. And we get so excited to share this good news that's happening and Yet this is even greater news that God sends, to send, to, sends for these three messengers to proclaim to his people. It's news that finally satisfies the longing of every human heart. This is your true home. This is the way things are, should be. This is the reality that you can actually live. And here's what the first voice says in verses 3 to 5. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And he sends two more voices, which we're not going to look at today, just one voice. He says, prepare the way. We don't have much time, so I just have to go straight to it. The picture is of a royal processional. Where even in the wilderness, in the desert, when you were expecting royalty or a king or a queen to come through, you'd have to prepare the way. You have to make straight the way. You know, if Will and Kate were coming to Cambridge, Ontario... Will and Kate, right? That is Will and Kate. Yes, it is Will and Kate. Or who's the other? Harry and, and Meghan. Wow, I am not into my royal history at all. If they were to come to Cambridge, Ontario, you would, see, you would see police cars preparing the way for their arrival down the street. You'd have, you know, you'd have those, you know, those, those black SUVs in front of them and behind them to protect them as they went along, probably down Highway 24, right, right down the street. You'd have the mayor ready to greet them or whatever Cambridge would throw together. That's the preparation of a royal processional in a much smaller fashion at Christmas when we're expecting someone important or a family member we haven't seen for a long time. We prepare our homes. We clean up the rooms. We actually maybe sweep and vacuum our floors, even if it's been months. We do all these things to prepare for the arrival of one coming into our home. And I love that it says in the wilderness and in the desert prepare the way and make straight a highway for our God. You wouldn't think of a royal to go through those things, but that's, those are the places that Jesus comes to, not palaces or opulence, but wild places, families that need help. And it's not always pretty, is it, Vanessa? In fact, it's never pretty, is it? It's never pretty. But those are the places that Jesus comes as king and works through. Those are the kind of places Jesus comes that need to be prepared. John the Baptist is ultimately fulfilled in this, in the incarnation, in the first coming of Jesus, who proclaims a baptism of repentance. This is how you prepare the way, is repent. Not obviously have police cars and squadrons ready for Jesus' arrival, but your hearts to be prepared for his arrival, the, the coming of the king. 
That is preparing the way for the king to enter. Preparation, I think, simply means this, an intentional anticipation of his coming. An intentional anticipation of your heart for his coming. And how far are you willing to go to prepare your own heart for the coming of Jesus? You know, I think most of us, Christian or not, just live our lives like anybody else. Not really anticipating anything. Not really, you know, looking for the next thing or anticipating the, the, the arrival of the king. You know, how would that change the energy how would it change uh, the spirit in our church to intentionally anticipate the arrival of the King? Not just at the first coming, but also His second coming when we await the full manifestation of His kingdom. What would that change in our hearts? And most of you probably just live, in, like me, just, you know, we just live kind of day to day. But I mean, if you were expecting a royal to come to your house, how would that change the way that you live? Like, would you not intentionally anticipate their arrival? To prepare your home, to prepare your heart. Because the king is going to do a couple things. And again, I I got to end. The king's going to do a couple things. Here's what he's going to do. In verse 4, it's what he's already done, of course, in this prophecy, what he's also going to do. In verse 4, it says, Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. In short, I believe Jesus is going to come, as he already has been, but even more so in his second coming. He'll make things the way that they are supposed to be. Those rugged and rough places speak of the obstacles and the sins and the failures that are in our life or the, the societal corruption that exists in our families, in our, in our hearts, but also in our cities and in our countries. But when Jesus comes, he's going to level them out. He will remove the obstacles, remove the rough places. He will restore this world to the way that it's supposed to be. This is what Jesus does. Even in his first com- in, in his first coming, we saw signs of that where he forgave sinners. He saw the shame where everyone else ignored them. He healed the sick. He welcomed the stranger into his presence. He still does the same things today through his children. He does things that only this king can do. That's what I believe verse 5 is talking about. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When it says the glory of the Lord shall be seen, I believe this. Glory is a manifestation of what only God can do. It's when you can sense with your senses. You can see, you can taste, you can touch the things that only God can do in this world. That you and I actually can't conjure on our own. And even as a church, no matter how much we try to pump up our worship experience, if God is not in it, there's no glory in it. It can't be glorious if God is not in it because glory insinuates that something is happening that only God can do that we can't. That's glory. 
And so when it says this king comes, the glory will be revealed, the glory of God will be seen. It means he's going to do things that only God can do. It's above our human experience. I think that's why we long for it so much. We long for this glory that you and I can't experience on our own. Every sports team that tries to win the Super Bowl or the Stanley Cup, we try to experience something that only exists in the divine. Even when we say this is a glorious thing, <laughs> even when I, my teams have won the Super Bowl, their Stanley Cup, and I say this is a glorious experience, it lasts for like an hour, and then everyone's already talking about the next season, and the glory's gone. We try to capture what only God can actually give. It's a longing for something that we can't achieve on our own. We can't even reach out and grasp on our own. It's something that only God can do. It's above our normal human experience. It exists in the realm of God. But this is what the king does when he will come. This is what he did when he came the first time. When a virgin conceived. No human can do that. When shepherds looked up and saw an army of angels saying, glory to God. Now we can't conjure that. But they were glorious displays that God is here. God is with us. Among us. The king has arrived. And we prepare for his second coming, for the full manifestation when Jesus returns, where we will see and experience things as they always should have been. My kids are reading the Chronicles of Narnia. We actually just finished two nights ago, just finished the last battle. By the way, Jared, on second reading, The Magician's Nephew was a great book. I think I bashed it a few weeks ago. It was a great book. It was better than I remember it. Jared threw me a lot of shade when I said Magician's Nephew was disappointing. It was better than I remember it. But in the last book of the last battle, you get C.S. Lewis writes that Narnia is basically gone, but there's this new, better Version, the true Narnia, which wasn't even a version of Narnia, was the Narnia that always should have been. It was a picture of the kingdom of God. It's when Jesus returns, we will see the full glory of God and see the earth and see each other the way that they always should have been to begin with. Where relationships are restored, where families are made whole, corruption will be gone because Jesus will reign. But in that book, in the last battle, I love this line, Jewel, who's a unicorn, and he's described as running through this new, this, this new kingdom of Narnia. They realize this is the Narnia, the way that things always should have been. And I love what he says. He says, I have come here at last. This is my home. Even though I didn't even know it. This is my real country. I belong here. And this is our encouragement. That when Jesus comes, we see the full manifestation of his kingdom. Those who choose to follow him, we say, this is my home. No matter what darkness is existing in my life right now, we long for something that Jesus will bring. We anticipate his coming.
That's why we say as Christians, that's why we don't say to God, get me out of here. Our hope is come, Lord Jesus. God, thank you so much for your word, for your encouragement this morning as we dive into this season of Advent. And I pray that simple prayer, come, Lord Jesus. Do what only you can do in our midst as we anticipate your arrival, as we look back and are grateful for your incarnation, but also as we anticipate your arrival. Lord, may we prepare our hearts. May we live in constant, intentional anticipation that you are coming. May that be real to us. May that that moment define us more than the worst sin that we've committed. May the hope of your coming, Advent, define our lives. We pray for all these things in your great name. Amen.